Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Or do you want to watch My Little Pony? I want to watch Paw Patrol. Okay. All right. What about this one with Everest? We're typically competing this with Paw Patrol. This it's one. the same demo that listens to our podcast. And then you so. press play again if you need it. Okay. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, April 24th, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, is it time for California to start rethinking density? Or in other words, everything we've done with our lives uh, for the last four years now over, we have to start all new. I'm putting that on you. I had other things I was doing the last four years. Not it wasn't me. all about. Not me. Really, no. it was just at a time when, you know, basically every story and a lot, a lot of density. Now, this, now everything has changed to a mid-coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just wonder, you know, post-coronavirus, whether we'll be talking about the same things as we were before. I think we'll definitely be talking about it in a different way, although maybe not for the, the reasons you might suspect. So hmm. we have the perfect guest to talk about this with. We always and have the perfect have? guest. Yes. Never, never. We never don't have the perfect guest. Uh, this time it's uh, Connor Doherty, reporter at the New York Times, uh, author of a recent book, uh, Golden Gates, about California, particularly Bay Area, but larger uh, housing crisis here. We had hoped to get Connor on right when his book first came out in February, but then Matt got the coronavirus. And so uh, we had confirmed. <laughs> We had to postpone that interview, but uh, we had a, we had a nice chat. I am still waiting for my blood test. <laughs> we will also be giving an update about Governor Gavin Newsom's attempts to bring more people experiencing homelessness into hotels and motels amid the pandemic, your favorite phrase, amid. and some cities who are not big fans of that idea. No, there's been a backlash. Although how widespread that backlash is, I think, is uh, something that me and you can get into. But certainly some cities, especially in Southern California, not big fans of this plan to convert hotels and motels to emergency homeless housing. Right. Let's move now to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story from the past two weeks. And this isn't really a housing story, but more a story about state government and technology that touches upon housing. This avocado, you know, we've been a lot of places in our avocado journeys over the past, I don't know, we've been doing this for like 25 years now. Right. This one, we're going to my living room. Ooh. So uh, picture this. So you're, um, you're sitting in your, in your chase lounge. I have like six chase lounges <laughs> in my living room. I got my, it's, it's 11.59 a.m. Okay. I got my Amy's vegetarian Soup. frozen food. Okay. I like the tamale. Okay, yeah. Very California. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, so anyway, that's fresh out of the microwave. Uh -huh. And I'm getting ready for what CalMatter Slack channel has been calling Newsome at Noon. So it's your fav what, what? favorite ritual. It's like, it is. Yeah. It is. And I, I like it so much, I don't even watch it on the Twitter live stream. I watch it on TV with local news because <laughs> wow. then I can see. Yeah. Like it's 1998, which is honestly the year I prefer to live in anyway. <laughs> anyway, so these Newsom's at Noons are these daily updates the governor gives about all aspects of how state government is trying to respond to coronavirus. He also gives updated numbers on the number of uh, positive cases and deaths and ICUs and hospitalizations. This one from Friday, April 17th, so a week ago, I'm tuning in, and uh, Gavin is talking about he is convening a task force that will revive California's economy. So this is not just uh, any task force. This is a really important task force. This is a powerhouse task force. So Tom Steyer is the chair. He's there uh, Former presidential in front of the cameras. candidate, uh, big donor on the Dem Hedge Democrats. fund billionaire. Yes, yep. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It is an 80-person task force. Wow. Which, that's a pretty, I, me and you have covered a lot of task forces over the years, for better or worse. That's the biggest I can remember. Large. Yeah. 80. Mm -hmm. Yes. It is full of powerhouses. It's Disney CEO Bob Iger, Janet Yellen, former Fed chair, is on this. And of course, Silicon Valley is represented in this too. And he's talking about this task force. And I'm going, you know what? California actually does have a lot of really brilliant business minds yes. that Gavin can tap to get advice on. The propaganda is working on me, yes. For, yes. For, is what I'm trying to say. Uh -huh. Also, and all four previous governors who are still alive, including friend of the podcast, Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
That's right. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. And I'm sure during this task force, they'll be playing clips of us. Yes. So he is inspiring confidence in the, the power of California commerce to, to bring us back. And then he introduces uh, someone from the Silicon Valley company Square. I believe those, those are the guys, you know, when you swipe your credit card. Right for local small businesses, to give her thoughts on how we're going to come back from this. And this is what she sounds like. Today marks day 29 of California's California home. Entrepreneurs are adapting in ways they would have never imagined. Restaurants have become online marketplaces. Fitness instructors are teaching virtual classes. So we are seeing the So some technological issues with with Jackie Reese from Square, where there's a pretty profound echo that you keep hearing. It's it's hard to determine what exactly she's saying. So, some irony because it's it's from Silicon Valley and get that there's it's a tech, a tech problem. company. Yeah, right. yes. Yeah, huh. But but you know what? We're living in extraordinary times That's here. Right. You know, we've been on Zoom calls that don't work out so well. Our podcast, you know, has had to change its audio quality. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm giving the governor the benefit of the doubt. Sure. Then they cue in Bob Iger, who is also on this call, and this is what you hear. Bob Iger, uh, CEO of Disney. When the threat of the virus became acute, and now at the Walt Disney Company, we really have two priorities. Getting our people back to work, as thousands have been furloughed during this business shutdown, and offering our guests and customers great entertainment experiences, whether it's a visit to Disneyland, going to a movie. So this goes on for five to ten minutes, I would say, and they can't cure the echo. And the most humorous part of this which I recommend you check out, this is on YouTube, is there's a sign language interpreter that accompanies these daily updates to tell people who are hard of hearing what's going on, and she's just completely given up at this point. <laughs> it's it's visible frustration. I don't know if you can sign an echo or not, but she's like looking in the camera with her palms up like, what am I supposed to do? So not the biggest vote of confidence in terms of how, if they can't manage this with three people on this call with Governor Newsom in front of a live audience, what they're going to do with 80 people. Okay, that concludes the Avocado of the Fortnite. I'll post a link to it in our show notes because I, you know, I have watched it a few times just for late at night entertainment purposes. Let's talk about these hotels, Liam. So this idea of having homeless residents in hotel rooms was sort of the big idea that was initially announced in sort of mid-March as the way to, you know, isolate folks that were also on the street and also potentially be kind of a more long-lasting solution to the state's homelessness problems even after coronavirus outbreak were to end. And so it was sort of really uh, being effort to kind of kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Three birds. What's the third bird? The the third bird is nobody's staying in a hotel right now. This is money for hotels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all sorts of things are being, you know, could be fixed by this, right? Um, So many birds, Liam. Yes, but, you know, this was announced in mid-March and we're now reaching the May 1st and not, I mean, the progress has been, has been slow. Yes. I, I think it is fair to say the progress has been slower than certainly advocates would have hoped. Yeah. So actually the, the day after the avocado update, I was covering the next update on a Saturday. Hmm. That's what I do for the good people of California mm-hmm. work, work on the weekends. Yes. And Newsom was outside a motel six in Santa Clara County. And he was giving an update on these efforts exactly. And he gave us some numbers. And these numbers are only coming from these periodic Newsom updates, at least the statewide numbers. Yep. So I wish I could have more current uh, numbers for you guys, but this was true as of Saturday, April 18th. The state had helped acquire nearly 11,000 vacant hotel rooms, about 4,200 of which were actually occupied with people who were homeless. Mm-hmm. Again, the yeah, con- go ahead. yeah, but you got context for that. I mean, the state's homeless population over 150,000 with what is it? Just, yes. just over 100,000 unsheltered. Again, everyone should take these numbers with a grain of salt. Right. When we so it's a, over 108,000 unsheltered, right. it is likely a much higher number. Right. Yes, that is obviously a small fraction of both the unsheltered and overall homeless population. The state is prioritizing people who are homeless who fit into the following categories, which makes sense. If they've tested positive for coronavirus, if they are symptomatic of coronavirus, and if they are basically old or have underlying health conditions that would make them especially vulnerable to the virus, those who are supposed to get the uh, hotel rooms, 
Yeah, first. Mm -hmm. And Newsom has pushed back a little bit on the notion of we're going to try to get every person who is unsheltered into these hotel rooms. He is focusing on um, these particular priority populations, partly because the federal government is mostly funding this. Mm -hmm. 75% of the cost of these leases, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, people of my generation will remember fondly from Hurricane Katrina, they're the ones that are picking up the, the vast majority of this tab. So- how should we judge this, right? It, 11,000 hotel rooms, that it's an achievement. I mean, it yeah. is. We weren't yeah. talking about this at all, yeah. right, mm-hmm. before then. Mm-hmm. So it, And it, it is work to get these contracts negotiated sure. and to get hotels on board. What I will say and, is— And services, too. I mean, there are services that have to go well, alongside it, right? So mm-hmm. That is proving to be the biggest hurdle. Right, right, right. Because the hotels, for the most part, are like, yeah, sure. You know, right. we will— we have some concerns in terms of, you know, insurance and liability right, and right. whether our lender is going to let us do this. But for the most part, we could definitely use this money. And obviously, these rooms are being va- are vacant right, right now. Right. So that's not been the bottleneck so far. Yeah. The, the staffing has proved to be more of a bottleneck because mm-hmm. you can't just put dump people who are homeless into a vacant motel room. They need services as well, right. especially if they have underlying physical ailments. The governor also at this event last Saturday uh, had a message, too, because he was uh, he's like, look, the state can only do so much. And I'm going to throw this uh, part of the problem here on on other people. Plus, this took me aback because this was the most explicit the governor has been in saying cities. Some cities are behaving like NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Literally everyone listening to this podcast knows and trying to block these hotels and motels from being operational. And he he devoted a good chunk of his address to scolding those cities, Mm. saying they were going to be judged by history and by morality and by themselves down the line, which I this was the first I had heard of the NIMBY issue rising to this level where Newsom felt that he had to actually speak to it during a live streamed event, right? Mm -hmm. So up to that point, there were kind of inklings of NIMBY resistance to this in Southern California. Laguna Woods, a city in Orange County, had basically protested a hotel being used for people who are homeless and coronavirus positive or symptomatic there, where there was a senior retirement community there that was really, really against the idea. There there has been some scuttlebutt for another city in Orange County, Laguna Hills. Yeah, they sued um, Laguna Hills. So Laguna Woods, they were actually successful, if you will, at the, at yes. keeping this sort of uh, homeless hotel out of their backyard. Uh, the Laguna Hills, uh, another Laguna named of many in Orange County City, um, <laughs> actually sued to try to block that Orange County officials from signing a contract to with a hotel to house at-risk homeless residents, uh, but a judge reject, rejected their argument and ruled the contract should go forward. So Laguna Hills and uh, Laguna Woods, I would say in, in some ways fit, I think, what a lot of pro-development advocates stereotypically picture kind of NIMBY cities in Orange County to look like. But there were some cities that also at least threatened legal action and are trying to prevent these hotels from being becoming operational, which don't fit that stereotype, which you wrote about, Liam. Yes, some lower income communities in Southern California, Los Angeles, and uh, the Inland Empire. Nor- the Inland Empire. Yeah, Norwalk, for instance, the officials there passed a moratorium to prohibit hotels and motels from being used as homeless housing without prior city approval. And the county is now, LA County, is going after them to try to overturn that. It's also the city of Bell Gardens. city had threatened legal action against the owner of the hotel if he had failed to transfer about 70 people to other facilities. I, I also tracked the city of San Bernardino, which is the, the city, obviously, in San Bernardino County, where they said during a meeting after a hotel there had been procured by the county, we don't want to be a, quote, dumping ground for the homeless population all over the county. Mm-hmm. So these are the, you know, again, more lower income communities Uh, also being opposed to some of these efforts. It was certainly newsworthy that Newsom, you know, rhetorically admonished these cities. It certainly got a decent amount of publicity. What was interesting was when I spoke to uh, some homelessness advocates and some legal aid people, there was a 
sentiment of, well, you know, it's great that the governor is doing this. These specific cities are proving to be an obstacle here. But the governor, it's in his power to do more. These are kind of echoes of some of the criticism the Newsom administration received on the eviction moratorium. Exactly. Exactly. That it's one thing to talk about it, but because of the emergency powers he's been granted— he can do some very concrete things to take away some of the legal basis that these cities are operating under, mm-hmm. such as suspending you know, certain zoning provisions, right, right. taking away some of the legal basis that these cities are lodging their arguments with. Yeah. But he, he hasn't done that. Right. One, one other thing quickly to add here is, as you mentioned, the administration and mayors across the state have been criticized for not moving quickly enough physically putting people in these hotels and motels, right? Mm -hmm. Time is of the essence here. It is obviously politically advantageous for Newsom to cast some of that blame on NIMBY cities, right? Well, anything other than himself. Exactly, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So that's not to say that this isn't true. And beyond those cities that have been reported on, you know, I'm sure there are cities that are maneuvering behind the scenes saying like, hell, you're going to let this Motel 6 become homeless housing in our neighborhood. Right, right, right. But there is, especially if he's not going to take action, it helps him justify the, um, what some would say is the relatively slow pace at which these hotels are are being occupied. So I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? I think think that's spot on. Let's move on to the density debate and how it has already changed. Or maybe it hasn't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, it was funny. I think both you and I were like waiting the for the yes. exact moment when someone was going to come out and say, oh, my God, coronavirus. Now we don't need cities anymore or dense housing yes. is a disaster. And, and this should all now be uh, hamlets or stuff like that. Right. Yes. And particularly after the reports from New York. Exactly. Coming out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it happened pretty quickly. I actually thought it took longer than <laughs> I was. I was honestly expecting it. I don't know. Uh, within. Minutes of the of the first Cuomo uh, press conference, right, right, I guess. Right, 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 I thought right. I thought I'd see something on Twitter about this. Right. But anyway, tell us about what the debate looks like now and how coronavirus has steered it in a different direction. Yeah, so I think it's interesting you brought brought up Governor Cuomo of New York because I think in many ways he's driven this debate. He's you know the one. There's very funny photo hmm. uh, or during a press conference he has these kind of known for doing these powerpoints, right? And so he's talking about, well, why New York? Why New York? And he's running through his PowerPoint. You know, why are we seeing this quote now? Why are we seeing this level of infection? Why cities across the country? It's very simple. It's about density. And as he's doing this, the PowerPoint has the word density in giant capital letters screaming at you right from the page. You know, and then you get some some evocative language. You know, the coronavirus, he says, is, quote, very contagious. The dense environments are its feeding grounds. Um, And so, you know, he's making the point that like, look, um, New York, densest city in the country has had the by far the worst spread uh, epicenter of this crisis. And you can he's saying you can blame that on, you know, high rise apartments and mass transit throughout the city for it being uh, affected there more than other places. So can we blame it on that? (sighs) I have a story that's coming. uh, If it's not published already, it will be published very soon on this where, you know, on the one hand, there is some research that suggests that denser counties are seeing higher rates of, of coronavirus infections and deaths, even after you take into account factors like, you know, weather, race, age, things like that, right? So it's not mm-hmm. like, also you have, you know, I, I spoke with Ed Glazer, who's this economist at uh, Harvard, wrote this book called Triumph of the City. So obviously a huge city guy, right? Urbanist telling me, look, for millennia, cities have been plagued going back to ancient Athens, you know, the time of Justinian and Constantinople by viral plagues, you know, and this is just another in a long line of viral plagues. So yet yet another Constantinople reference (laughs) for the podcast. So on, on the one hand, you know, there's not it is not wrong to look at dense environments as being correlated with the spread of this virus. Um, no, and it's all, it's yeah. also, let me just say yeah. this, it is also far too intuitive to dismiss out of hand. Absolutely. The closer you live in proximity to others, yes. the R not goes up. I mean, right. that's, there's just, that's basic, basic, basic logic, yes. right? So yes. anyway. Yes. So that's on, that's the one hand. It's a matter of degree. That's the one hand, right? And then the other hand, you got very highly populated, dense cities in Asia, you know, Seoul, mm-hmm. Tokyo, S- Hong Singapore. Kong, Singapore, a fraction of the cases in New York, right? 
even in San Francisco, which is, you know, yes. by many metrics, the second densest city in the country, uh, 1,300 or so cases, you know, far fewer than the, you know, 150,000 plus that have been in New York City, right? And in San Francisco, of course, there was is a big difference that they, or the shelter in place order issued there and other Bay Area counties nearly a week before New York did. And also what, you know, what it seems to be before the virus had spread as much as it had in New York as well. So it points to things like government action, right, um, and public health issues being a yes. way to potentially contain this virus, perhaps more so than how many apartment dwellers there are in a community. So do you think fear of living in a dense environment will significantly dilute the push for the densification of California. So I think it's going to be a significant part of the conversation by opponents in particular. That's, there's yeah. no question about that. But I don't know how much more difficult it will be. I mean, again, it's already difficult to pass something like this. It wouldn't have failed three times, right? So, yes. so I don't know how much harder. We still don't know what other things the legislature is potentially cooking up if you will, to increase uh, housing production in the state. But it may be a sign that they may shy away from things like zoning and perhaps point to other things if they feel like the weight of the coronavirus and the arguments against against density might make it even even at another level of difficulty. So I don't know. I mean, I will say, though, there are certain aspects of this that are not going away. The argument yes. that you need to build denser housing for climate change purposes is sort of a bedrock of the city's, or I'm sorry, the state's climate change regime, right, to get people driving less. So that, I think, is not going to change. We're not in the fall yet. Not only may coronavirus mm -hmm. come back, but also there may be wildfires again across the state which, you know, uh, has been a reason in the past to, again, promote denser living as opposed to suburban, more rural and suburban development where you've had these uh, fires rage through, right, in recent years. You can add this virus to the list of threats from the elements yes. that yes. Californians face. Kind of, you know, pick which part of the state you want to live in, and then your threat from this specific element gets exponentially larger, right? right? Mm -hmm. You want to live in more rural areas, it's wildfires. Yeah. You want to live in coastal, more dense areas, earthquakes, and now coronavirus. <laughs> you want to live in the Central Valley, there's floods. Right. So it's yeah. it, it could kind of go that way. Right. What is, I think, more pressing in terms of the push for density, at least to me, is what happens with public transit. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that second uh, and honestly equally important portion of something like SB50, it's not just housing, it's housing around transit. Yeah. And if you have to rethink how public transit operates because uh, the threat of spreading the virus, yeah. I think that does at the very least complicate things in an environment where public transportation agencies are hemorrhaging money, right? right? right. So the, the quality and access to transit, I think, is now you know, possibly more under threat than ever before. And they were already struggling before this. I mean, you know, exactly. if you look at the statistics on, you know, ridership and transit ridership, at least as it, when it came to the metro in Los Angeles, was down significantly. And also service cuts were there too. I mean, I've been shocked, at, you know, riding the metro here, how packed some of these trains are and packed yeah. in part because there were fewer of them that were running, right, during rush hours. Um, and so, or... Uh, you know, fewer than running during nighttime when, you know, you take 20 minutes to wait for a, a train out of downtown at eight o'clock. And then, of course, there are going to be a lot of people in them. And then the equation in someone's mind, especially, let's say, if they have an under if they're diabetic, if right. they have an underlying health condition right. or if they're older is, well, do I really want to get a metro yeah. and like be next to a bunch of people who are breathing on me? Right. Or do I want to get in the car? And I can already hear people saying, well, you're, there's risk and getting in the car right. and the cars kill people too. Yeah. And that's obviously true, yeah. but the mental calculus I think may change around transport. Yeah. So we should also talk about the difference between density and overcrowding. Yeah. So I think there's some nuance here when you look at what we even mean by density. It's funny. I was writing this story and I thought I, as someone who writes about this, knows what density is, but you can look at it density in like a million different ways. And even like the idea of simply, you know, taking a population in an area and dividing it by the landmass is, 
kind of a, a simple way to do it, but not really a, a perfect way to understand how dense a place is, right? So I was, that's my kind of uh, mental tangent about how do we even define density? But I do think there is really important information that's been coming out about sort of rates of overcrowding and what we're seeing about the coronavirus versus say simply, you know, again, the amount of apartment dwellers in a particular space. So there was a good study, an interesting study that came out, NYU's uh, Furman Center, which found uh, no relationship between the disease and overpopulation and overall population density in New York. And in fact, some neighborhoods in Manhattan, which of course is the densest borough, had some of the lowest infection rates. The study, however, did find that the disease is more prevalent in areas of New York where there are has been overcrowding, more people crowding into homes. And so I think that's significant. You know, most people don't think of LA as a especially dense place, but LA, mm -hmm. LA County has five of the top 10 most crowded zip codes in the entire country. Right. And health mm -hmm. officials here are very worried about spread and the virus is spread in, in those neighborhoods. And so when we're talking about density, I think it's important to think about sort of the ways in which certain populations in particular have been forced into these kind of overcrowding or kind of bad housing situations and how those populations. And I'm thinking, you know, of the uh, kind of overrepresentation uh, among black Americans of those dying from the coronavirus yeah. as kind of this link between what, you know, I quoted someone in the story, in my story, uh, Jay Pitter, an urbanist from Toronto, you know, who said this is this kind of stuff should be considered bad density, right? It is still density, but bad density is what's leading to some of these disparities that we're seeing in some of these death rates and case rates and things like that. And a lot of people would argue, including our guest, Connor Doherty, which makes this case with a pretty illuminating example in his book, that overcrowding is a result of a lack of building. Yeah, I think there's plenty of uh, argument uh, for that as well. Let's talk with Connor. We are here with Connor Doherty, reporter at the New York Times covering economics and housing issues here on the West Coast, and the author of Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Thank you for finally joining us, Connor. Thank you for finally having me. I'm a <laughs> longtime listener of this show, so, you know, it's we, great to be here. We appreciate that. So um, the first thing that jumped out at me when reading the book, and it's a, it's a good read and a quick read, was the fact that I wasn't in it and neither was Liam. So why aren't we in this book? I, you know, I didn't, I, <laughs> I guess I forgot to include you guys. I didn't, I don't know that I, uh, did I interview any reporters for the book? You guys are quietly waiting in the wings, uh, <laughs> you know, flies on the wall that I'm the fly on the wall on. So, you so know, we're, anyway. we're, we're a series of flies. <laughs> That's, isn't that what we all are? You know, when I wrote the book, I probably should have done a lot of different things, but I was really obsessed with this idea that I didn't want to be self-referential of my role in it. So there's no first person. Mm -hmm. All the quotes in the book are quotes that are either people talking to other people or they're like speeches. Like there's no quotes in the book that are quotes from my notebook, not one. I think there might mm. be one actually, but I hit it. So you'll notice, like like I said, anytime someone's talking to someone, they're they're either giving a speech to a room full of people, or there might be some emails. I go in this old school thing where like even writing about the media was considered like a weird thing. But maybe I should. I mean, I don't know that I should have put you and Liam and Matt in the book, but um, I maybe I should think about that more. So Connor, g give us your central thesis about why housing is so bad in California. I think housing is bad everywhere. And California is just like the worst, right? Uh -huh. And I had been covering housing for you know many years for the Wall Street Journal primarily. And then I came to the New York Times to cover tech, actually. And I was aware of this quote unquote NIMBY problem, which stands for not in my backyard for people who listen to this podcast and don't know that. And I knew that there was a lot of research on this. I mean, I'd known Ed Glazer, who is this Harvard professor that has become somewhat famous for writing a lot of academic papers about the problem with nimbyism creating less housing. And so what happened was I was trying to write about a project that was like this project from hell, a little bit had been written about it called 1050 Valencia, which was an apartment project on Valencia Street in, uh, in San Francisco. And it was like the kind of the classic thing, like all the zoning rules were 
basically nothing had to change and it was still impossible to build. So I did this story. So I ended up meeting the developer and I just like looked at my notes at the end of the story and it just was such a like bankrupt story. It was like this like developer complaining about the big bad government and how there are too many people working in the building department and whatever, you know, just like everyone is horrible and everything's inefficient. And then kind of academic papers saying like, oh, this developer's right. And it just felt like not compelling. Anyway, my take is that we don't have enough housing, we don't have enough affordable housing, and that some degree of overregulation is responsible for that. I think at this point, we're so far into the ditch that we're going to need like a huge amount of subsidy to get out of it. It's almost like what we're missing is all the housing we didn't build in like 1985. And I recognize like getting out of that problem is going to require some huge subsidy to build housing that is affordable right away or some policy lever that creates that, the general undersupply of housing and the difficulty of building it, it feels like it's a pretty big problem. There's a lot of people who have tried to create some degree of, I don't know, they've tried to intelligent design this topic. And what I mean by that is they've tried to sort of like cast doubt on the idea that there is any kind of shortage or that the supply of housing has anything to do with the price of housing. And it's one of the chapters I was most proud of was this chapter where I was like, I followed this low-income family through an eviction and a dis- or not, it wasn't even an eviction. It was an economic displacement. Their rent went up and they couldn't yeah. afford it. Very similar profile family replaced them by getting like, I think it was eight people in the same unit where four used to live. This yeah. is actually yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah. common. Right. It's very, right. very common. You know, one thing I really felt like I tried to do throughout this book, which is that I really tried super hard to beat on this idea. Like, is there some person who's really, really studied this idea, who has found about this idea that there was an undersupply? And I just, I just couldn't find it. Michael Storper wrote some papers. And right. I, yeah. Um, that's, right. That, that was the name that popped to mind for me. Well, yeah. so I read two of his books. I talked to him for the book and I read his big thing. What I really found, though, there were two camps. Okay, so we've had these huge economic changes that we've become a much more bifurcated economy. Primary reason for this is like middle class jobs and manufacturing and stuff like that have essentially gone away. And that has hollowed out the middle class. And then so we had what's called the barbell economy. One side is these kind of higher paid, quote unquote, knowledge workers exemplified by tech, but it could be anybody. Mm -hmm. And then we have these like kind of service workers on the other end, which are, you know, dog walkers and soul cycle instructors and nannies and house cleaners. And, and what's unique about our economy and the way cities work is that those two groups have to be smashed together. Uh, So there's two camps, right? One camp is the economy has changed in all these ways. It's much more unequal. And that's the real problem with America. And then the other camp is like housing, is is the huge problem in cities. And I feel like they're both the problem. It's almost like watching like the to be sure part of the study. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's like it's yeah. like mm-hmm. one set yeah. of studies is like, oh, the economy is the huge problem. And oh, yeah, housing's kind of important too. And then the other study is like, oh, housing's hugely important, but oh, the economy and how it changes is kind of important too. And I just right. kind of feel like, okay, great, right? But where I think this is important in like local government is that like for all the talk about like, these big economic issues, people at the San Francisco Board of Supervisors have like no control over that. And really, to some extent, the people at the LA City Council don't really either. I mean, LA City Council can at least squint their way to it because it's such a bigger city. But, you know, local government just simply doesn't have that power. I mean, one of the things that always annoys me is like all these things governments talk about that they have like no control over. And I just like, I just, probably because I come at this from the economic standpoint, I just have like no tolerance for that type of thing because rather, I'm just like, rather than the political standpoint, which is, of course, they're going to talk about the things they can't do because that distracts from, from the things they can. But I do think that cities have like immense control over land use. I mean, they have so much influence over people's lives when it comes to this one issue. One of the things I thought was truly fascinating about housing is that it's one of these areas where the government has like insane amount of control. How like development works is just like, I just feel like it's so government centric. It's, it's fascinating to me, the role they have. So they, they can have a huge role if they want to. So I actually found that to be a fascinating place because 
aside from, you know, again, those long motion things like giant government programs and investments and big things, it feels like the government doesn't have that much control over, you know, the ebb and flow of the economy. But in housing, like I said, it was so profound. It was fascinating to me. So the book has been out for how long now? A couple months? Two, three months? Two months. It came out on February 18th. Has anything about the reaction or reception to the book kind of surprised you? I think the reaction was pretty positive. I was happy about that. The reviews were all really good. I was happy about that. The one thing that I anticipated, but maybe the degree to which it happened surprised me, was a number of people essentially complained that it was too Bay Area focused. When you decide to tell a story, you inevitably put yourself in a box. You create a frame for your story, and that frame is the way you approach it. And it would be too unwieldy if you did it another way. So one frame, like I said, was that I wanted to create like a fourth wall where I wouldn't be in it and I wouldn't have quotes that were from my notebook because I thought that would be like a more immersive way of telling the story. But of course, there were a million times when I wanted to put some first person thing in and I just sort of made a decision like I'm not going to do that. And so that means leaving some good stuff out. By the same token, I just was determined to kind of take one place and unpack it. And I felt like people would say it was kind of Bay Area centric, but that they would be okay with that because it's like a classic frame. I mean, take a book like Evicted, which I loved, right? But that book is about essentially two neighborhoods in Milwaukee. And it is an absolutely amazing book because it takes this individual problem, the instability created by constant eviction and ties it to poverty writ large in America. That's why it's so important. So I kind of thought in my head, like, oh, I'm taking tech central and inequality central as a micro example of something that ails every place because, you know, this bifurcation between knowledge work and service work. You even go to like Cleveland, you'll still see it. But I think the Bay Area, because of they just they're not going to allow it to be every town USA. But my answer is that it is. For decades and decades and decades, there's been this like frame. California is like a look at the nation's future. And right. I just think it's true. So I tried to use that frame and it just feels like people won't allow the Bay Area to be a generalizable, if that's even a word, example. The thing that I I liked the most, well, I liked the whole book and I promise you I read the whole thing. I did enjoy the preface and the conclusion the most in the book because I thought that there were some simple declarative statements about like how we got here in California on the housing crisis and how you get out of it that I thought were just really straightforward, clear, and provided a level of intelligibility that I think, frankly, a lot of the debate was lacking. But also you, in that vein, you end the book optimistically by essentially implying it's only a matter of time before demographic and generational forces override opposition to new housing. Do you still think that that take is correct, especially given what we're now seeing with coronavirus and concerns about dense housing or more housing? Yes, 100%. For starters, what are we really going to do? Is everybody going to leave housing and go to like rural America? Well, what do we then have to do? Build a city in rural America? Like, I don't see the like city going away. So that's the first thing. And of course, the hilarious part is, let's say everyone decamped cities. Well, you'd have to build a whole lot of housing somewhere to compensate for all this like loss of people, right? So I I mean, it gets a little circular. I think the other thing is too, the worst place in the Bay Area was Santa Clara County. Okay, let me tell you, as I kind of illustrated in the book, there's a lot of crowded housing in Santa Clara County because there's all these, you know, service workers, piling into places. I mean, go down the street in East Palo Alto. It is crazy. There's eight, nine, 10 people living in, I mean, there's 30 in the most like crazy cases, but like a typical situation is that like, you know, somewhere between six, seven and a dozen people are living in single family homes there. And that feels much more unsafe to me than people navigating hallways of like moderately dense buildings. Right. So that's, I guess, I don't think that take is different. As for the optimistic part, so as you guys know, there is this insane toxicity around the housing. Um, No, disagree. uh, Yes, exactly. And 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 I think I think part of my Gen X, but part of my Gen X is ness is like just 
it's amazing to me how people can just be so insane on Twitter and then you meet them and they're so lovely and you're like, wait, how can you, how, can, how is this even possible? They sort of see that separation is like more normal than I do. That's fine. That's cool. As long as they're all operating on the same terms and no one feels like sad about it. I think they all feel sad about it. <laughs> I don't, yeah, don't even start about that. Yeah. Well, I will say, uh, so quick detour. When I was like reading this history about the Bay Area and California in general, it's like there's always seems to be this like weird pattern of like people moving west for some that of something else, right? And one group of people often tend to be it's some dream of getting rich in some capacity, uh, whether it's you know fur trapping in one era or tech now or gold in another. And then there's all also this group of people, uh, Henry George, who was this kind of, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with him. He was this kind of like famous reformer who was in San Francisco. There's some people who are like cheering uh, in their, in their uh, staying and they're sheltering in place right now that Henry George has been mentioned. Yeah. So my point is that the Bay Area and California in general have always attracted this group of like people who want to move to the place to get rich. And people who want to move to the place because they want to create a new kind of society, a new, more just way of life than they saw in the other part of America. And to some extent, I feel like that same ageless clash is what we're seeing through housing these days. And as I was kind of like driving myself crazy, just feeling like I wanted these people to get along, I just kind of came to the conclusion that, you know what, this place is defined by groups of people who are like this, like smashing into each other. And that the place is a result of that smashing. It's not a result of one or the other. You know, like one group moves out there thinking they're the promised children, and then they get out there and find out there's another group of promised children, and then they like decide that they have to hate each other. And then the place becomes these would-be promised children like trying to kill each other. And so I've just kind of come to the conclusion that You've seen all these things that have resulted from these people bashing each other. And ultimately, I, I'm optimistic about that. Perfect example but is isn't, whenever... Well, 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 yeah. I'm going I'm I'm to push back on that because yes. isn't the whole thesis of your book that, that this hasn't worked? And that's why we're in the scenario that we're in now, right? Because we haven't figured out how to make this work. And for decades, we've been you know smashing into each other and not building enough housing. But NIMBYism is like a predominant mode of living in America. You could go to Phoenix, you know, where they're building things everywhere. And in certain neighborhoods, you'll still see people fight back against things, right? So I feel like those areas of agreement are like often more fundamental to how we're living and what's happening. So all of California was a place where they were building a ton of stuff and everyone seemed to agree with that. They, you know, 50% of people voted for the water project that got LA more water and they never thank us for. And, uh, you know, there, there was, but, but just all wait, just one second, Connor, yes. just to remind you were uh, born and raised in the Bay area, correct? Yes. Born. Yes. Yeah, so I was just, actually technically just clarifying born. for the fellow Angelinos. Yes, that listen exactly. To the podcast. No, so I was born... requisite that there was a water shot lob towards yeah. Southern California. Well, I always love when it, like LA environmentalists, I'm like, dude, the whole place is like an environmental there catastrophe. But anyway, I was yep. like, they, do you know how much of like power generation in California that everyone wants to be green now is just like, Getting I'm, I'm water checking to off LA. squares on my NorCal cliche uh, bingo card. Well, I'm right just now. like sitting there and I'm just like, well, maybe we could just stop pumping all the water and then we wouldn't have to worry about greenhouse emissions anymore. We could just do that. Whatever. I love LA. I'm just, I just, it's it's an artificial place. So um Wow. wow. I I don't mean like I just meant I think what happened over the past few years is this. People came to a place where the argument moved from Let's not build any housing to what are we going to build? We've had all these ADUs laws passed. We've had tons of money for affordable housing. We've had like, maybe it's not enough, but it's a lot more than they had. And so I feel like the fight is being reframed now towards what are we going to do? Not like, don't do anything. And oh, so, 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 you're, you're, so you're saying the fact that the conversation has in, in some ways, particularly in the Bay Area, moved from... Uh, not is housing good or bad, but what kind of housing should we have, you think is a, a positive development? Yeah, and particularly amongst that younger generation of people who, like if you talk to 
kind of the more socialist minded people in San Francisco, I think they truly genuinely are enthusiastic about building some kind of public and social housing. I think, right. I think that's, I think they, they would stand there proudly at the ribbon cutting. Right. Yeah. And I think that some of the Yimby people would also be enthusiastic about that, but they would also want market rate housing as well, right? Right. I think there's an older generation that would be unhappy about either of those things. Mm -hmm. And so them, the conversation moving to a place where people are just fighting about what they want and and amongst that younger generation, if that becomes the fight, I think that will have been the fact that they're agreeing on something that they want to build things. I think that can win the day. And I think that the older generation, when I read kind of history, the way environmentalism became a mass movement that in some cases brought together people who were very progressive with people who just in many cases were like a hardcore anti-immigration. And I guess what I'm saying is, is that I was optimistic about the fact that the things that people were arguing over felt like they had shifted. So I, I was hoping kind of you could help me kind of get my head around something I've been wrestling with, which is if single-family home prices drop significantly in the wake of a, a pandemic-induced recession, and if rents also drop, which is an if, but a, a likely if, talking to a lot of economists, how does that affect this debate? Because it seems to me the urgency for producing more housing was ironically buoyed by the fact that it is so insanely expensive to buy a home in the Bay Area, and it is so insanely expensive to rent a studio apartment in Los Angeles. The but, graphs with the arrows keep going up. You know? Exactly. Yes. But, it, right. but yeah. if the arrow starts going down, what happens to this debate? I still think we're going to have a huge housing problem. A couple of reasons. One, if you truly believe there is a shortage, then that should persist regardless. Like if, if there really are still like eight people per unit in East Palo Alto and all of them are unemployed all of a sudden, Unless there's a mass migration out of California, at which point, I mean, I might become a NIMBY then, right? You wouldn't need the housing then if literally half the population left or whatever. I mean, that's extreme, right? Uh, The other thing is too, and this gets a little technical, a lot of the pressure in California was being relieved by the fact that a lot of people were leaving California. You know, as you guys know, more people move out than in. That typically... The population typically grows faster, weirdly, through recessions because less people leave, right? You know, so it's like paradoxical, like, you know, you know, what happened in the Great Recession was a bunch of people like didn't leave cities. People who would typically have been leaving cities to go find more space in the suburbs when they have kids, like weren't doing it. And then, of course, this millennial generation was coming into the workforce at that time. So they were like looking for that type of urban housing like right at that time. So I think that the, the, the force of people not leaving could actually be kind of a wild card in all this that could actually make it like worse. If everyone all of a sudden finds it easier to find housing and to rent housing for a price that is in line with what they're making at work, then, and there is less of a housing problem, I'll be first in line to start talking about that. Yeah. If, but is, if, isn't if, that a point about like in line with what they're making at work, the real key one here? There, well, that, that, there's, a reason, work, there's right? a reason why yeah. that caveat was in there, right? So right. Right. like, I mean, where, what's the point here? You know, isn't the point right. to make housing not like 50% of your income, like your budget? Right. Like, isn't the point right. to have people right. in more stable situations? Like, you know, right. so, but you know, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of factors here and they will find a direction. You know, rents did not go down like at all in the Great Recession. Uh, they flatlined. But that was, as you well know, there were some unique attributes of the Great Recession versus prior recessions where rents, you know, did drop at least in some magnitude. Yeah. Another thing about California is we already have incredibly low household formation. And so, yeah. so one of the reasons that rents typically go down in percentage is that people move in with each other. I don't know that we have a whole lot of like extra space there to do that. You, you know what I mean? So I think, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm as curious as you guys about this, but having covered the Great Recession and seeing rents not change, I think there's a lot of wild cards here that will be hard to, 
figure out. It's not like homelessness is going to get a lot easier or better. Right. And people are now starting to, it seems like people are now starting to recognize that having a bunch of people crowded together is a genuine, or or living on the streets, is a genuine public health threat. Yeah. Um, But I will say this. Liam asked me earlier if the book was still relevant uh, or aspects of it were still relevant in the wake of coronavirus. And, you know, while I still think the frame of the book and the frame of the problem and the, uh, the particular players and the impacts on people's lives and all these different things, I think that's all still relevant. But I do think this book is like a bookend now of an yeah. era. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, whatever, right. wherever right. we're going, that book is like the like the end the of end the, point. that right. is the end right. of yeah. where we were. Yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the first things I did when I finished the book was I read this book about uh, this book, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning, which is a great book about New York in 1977. And it's so fascinating. You're reading this book and it's like, it's just New York sounds like such a like terribly like troubled place at that time. It's like, you know, murders and the blackout and the city's going broke. And, and it like really is like, you know, the classic New York is like, it looks like the bat, what New York looks like. Son of Sam. Son of Sam, all that stuff. And, you know, of course you now look back on that book with hindsight and you're like, Oh, that was actually the, the people who are living that moment while they're living it think that they're in the, like up in the abyss. But like those of us reading it now can like look back at it and go, huh, you're actually just about to like, turn the corner and be on an ascent that is now the, like everyone's mad about gentrification of the New York today, but like that, like started in like the late 78, 79 and you know, whatever. So I actually think that when I look back on this, when we look back on where we're going as a state and really as a country, we'll look back on the seeds of that moment right before and say like, oh, wow, the seeds of where we were going we're right there. Now, I don't know how that will really end up. Maybe it will end up that we, you know, get consumed by battles and we become, you know, a highly, highly unequal society and the middle class is totally gone. Maybe we find some weird balance between using subsidies to build housing, but then a smarter regulatory framework for people who don't need subsidies, right? Whatever, right? Right. Maybe we do that. But like, I think like the seeds of wherever we're going, like you'll see it in that moment. You'll see it in those debates. I mean, hence why you see people saying like, coronavirus shows we need to solve the housing crisis. Yes, YIMBY. And another person saying coronavirus shows we dense housing will kill us. Yes, NIMBY. You know what I mean? It's like everyone just defaults to the place they already are. All well, right. I think I think where we are right now is for to thank you, uh, Connor, for uh, taking the time to chat with us. It's a pleasure. Um, we really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I, I really love the pod. And I'm like I said, I just wanted to tell a book about housing policy that was like interesting and fun and character based. Thank you again, Connor. The book is Golden Gates Fighting for Housing in America. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReport. And for me, Liam Dillon, I am on Twitter at DillonLiam. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to our guest, Connor, and we'll be back in two weeks. Mm-hmm.